but it would be um, great to uh, even get more than that. So, um, with that here, uh, I want to welcome our visitors. <laughs> Thank you for being with us um, this morning. And, uh, things are a little different here this morning, and uh, my, my heart's uh, certainly heavy, and I'm going to probably stumble over this here before we take the Lord's Supper, but uh, I hope you get the point today that God has raised up a nation to bear the name of God. And we're going to see that in Exodus chapter 19 here. And um, a little bit review because it's kind of been scattered. We've been working through this series here on the mission of God. God's mission to bless the nations through Abraham, through the Senate that would come through Abraham, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. And then his followers would carry on his mission after him. And it's kind of been a little staggered here. We had a, we started off and then we had a church picnic and then... Uh, we reconvened, and then last week we had a missionary, Ben Jacobs, uh, with us, and she shared his ministry on uh, this next Sunday. My father will be uh, filling in for me, as we'll be in the Allagash, and then uh, pick up again. Um, but uh, we're, 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 we started off last week in Genesis chapter 12 with God's plan of blessed nations, and this text here is repeated over and over in the New Testament, and frequently in the sermons that Paul and Peter give in the book of Acts. And God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, get you out of your country and from your family, from your kindred, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curses you and in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. And then that phrase there, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Paul said in Galatians, this is, this was um, uh, God speaking the gospel beforehand to Moses, that good news, that in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Well, how is that to happen? In Genesis chapter 18, God tells uh, uh, Abraham this. In Genesis 18 and uh, in verse 16, God is going to destroy Sodom for their wickedness. And he sends a delegation, probably himself, and he eats with Abraham. And in Genesis 18, verse 16, God said, uh, verse 17, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, or I have known him, that he will command his children and his household after me, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice, righteousness, and judgment, justice, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken. In these verses here, we have a, 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 a very key text here for how this will begin to flesh out. These verses tell us, working backwards, what God's ultimate mission is. To bring about the blessing of the nations, as he promised Abraham. A mission. But then he tells how that will be achieved. And that will be achieved um, uh, by, a, 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 in the world, this community that will come from Abraham, starting with Abraham's family. Remember, he didn't have a family yet. He had no descendants. He was an elderly Chaldean couple with no descendants. But this family will come that will be taught to live according to the way of the Lord and righteousness and judgment. There will be a distinct way from the world that they will display God. But how will this family come into existence? 
Because God chose Abraham to be his founding father. So who's Abraham? He's this one who God had chosen to come to know in personal friendship. And why did he choose him? To, to, to initiate a people here, through his obedience here, who would be committed to the way of the Lord and his righteousness and judgment in a world that was going the way of Sodom. And for what purpose should the people of Abraham then live according to God's righteousness and justice? Answer, so that God would fulfill his mission of bringing blessing to the nations. So let me just frame the reality of this out in the Old Testament. When you have people like the widow of Zarephath, the Gentile, when you have Ruth, when you have Naaman, when you have the wicked Assyrians and Nineveh, the Jonah story, coming to faith in the God of Israel, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. When Solomon prayed that the people from the ends of the earth would come and have their prayers answered by God, when he prayed that at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. When the psalmist talked about the nations rejoicing and being glad in God, and the apostles and the, and the gospel writers saw this extension of God's good news to the Gentiles and the, the, the non-Jewish people, they knew that God was keeping his promise to Abraham. And you remember when we looked at it in, in, uh, in Matthew, how Matthew begins his genealogy of Jesus with Abraham. And how he ends the book of Matthew with all nations, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to be obedient to Jesus Christ's commands. Uh, and, 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 and when the gospel moved in the book of Acts into Asia Minor, west to Europe, south to Africa, east to Arabia, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. When the gospel stretched further and further over the country, over the centuries, and reached the ends of the earth, including the unexplored North and South America, God was keeping his promise to Abraham. And when the gospel reached you and I in the corner of the United States, in New England, and here, mid-coast Maine, and brought us into this multinational community through Abraham's faith and obedience, and ultimately the one who was flawless and died and rose again, the Messiah, God is still keeping his promise. And as we obey Jesus' commands to the church, our missional impact, our mission to make disciples who are obedient to Christ will be in line with God and His Word and purposes, and we will have a powerful witness in a world of Sodom. So back in Exodus 19, there's a false teaching and a misnomer that Israel was, was, was saved by being obedient to God's law, and we in the New Testament are saved by grace alone. I want you to see this morning that that is so untrue because Israel is saved by God's grace. And because they were saved by God's grace, through faith in what he had done, they were then to live out a life in loyalty to Jesus, to Yahweh, to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the unlimited understanding they had. 
In Exodus 19 that Ethan read there, and we see on the, on the screen, uh, you, we, we see this, this, this precursor here before God gives his law, the Old Testament. This is what is required. This is how it is to live and flourish here. And what we see in Exodus is that there have been 18 chapters of God's grace and redemption that lead up to chapter 20, chapter 19 and 20. 18 chapters. God uh, took Israel as in slavery and raised up the deliverer. He, he, uh, he, he, he destroyed the gods of Egypt and showed his power over those evil powers with the plagues of Egypt. He released Egypt in the, in the, uh, he released Israel in the Passover and Israel went to the Red Sea and then when they were faced with danger again, what did he do? He opened the Red Sea and led them through it. And then when they were one, when they were, when they were traveling the promised, promised land, he provides them water out of a rock and manna. And here he is in Exodus 19 reminding them of his grace. He says, Thus shall you say in verse 3 to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You saw, you seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now stop a second and think about that. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. You saw what I did to those who held you in bondage. You saw that. You saw that. How could they not see it, right? With those plagues. And how I bore, I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You saw that, Israel. And your exodus here was not a movement just from slavery to freedom, but it was a movement from slavery now to a covenant relationship with me. You saw that. Now verse 5, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar or a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. There's something really, really powerful here. Um, God's redemption, and this is true all along in Scripture, is for relationship with the Redeemer. His redemption is for relationship with the Redeemer, to serve his interests and his purposes for the world. This redemption that God provided Israel from Egypt's bondage had clear spiritual intended results here. We can look ahead here and see that the cross, the supreme moment of redemption, was God's victory over all that opposes him in the slave creation. But what is redemption? Redemption is the act, someone has said, in which the act of God in which he stands up as the great champion exerts his mighty strength and pays the full cost of rescuing from all that opposes and oppresses his creation. It involves the defeat of all evil power and the reversal of all dimensions of bondage that afflict people. It brings his people out from under and brings them into a new relationship with God and that new relationship calls for the practical response of now living in light of redemption and God's mission for the world. So who is Israel? What were they here for? Exodus 19 answers that question. It answers that question powerfully. That Israel was redeemed to be, notice there at the bottom here, a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Israel had seen God's salvation. You saw what I did in the Egyptians. You saw how I carried you on eagles' wings. And I brought you to myself here. That 
and, and now here he's going to say, here's the response that needs to happen. An obedient response that follows God's kindness. Verse 5, now therefore, therefore, now live out this redemption here. Live out these transformed lives. Live out the grace of God. Live it out here. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then here's what I have for you. You will be a special treasure to me, for all the earth is mine. That word, a peculiar treasure, special treasure, is a Hebrew word, segola. And it means treasured possession. And it's this, the idea of this. It appears eight times in the Old Testament. And two of those times it refers to in the Chronicles, the book of Chronicles, as the king's personal treasure. The other times it's referred to Israel as Yahweh's treasured possession. It might seem weird equating a people with a savings account here. How can a group of people be considered a treasure here? But it's this, it's this idea here. Just as you put away your earnings for a special purpose, and you treasure what you patiently say, so this is what Yahweh is saying, this is what Jehovah is saying. That he has selected and saved Israel from among all the nations to be his treasured people. From slaves to treasure for a purpose. And look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. He shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Why had he done this? Because there is an unfinished mission. They were to stand in the middle between a wicked world. And the God of heaven who had redeemed them. They were to stand in the middle as priests. All of them. Certainly they were the Levitical priests, right? One particular tribe. But in the sense of representing God, they were to stand in the middle as representatives of the king. To the nations, the job of priests. That their task was to bring God to the people. And to bring the people to God. And so, in chapter 20, he starts to frame out what that's going to look like. Here's the life of God in them for Israel. Their laws that God gives were not God trying to make things hard for them. But he was showing them this is how life under me flourishes. Think about it. If, if we built a, 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 if you were uh, building a playground and it was close to the road in a dangerous spot there, you would want to put some fences around that playground here to, to allow those children to have joy and not be smashed flat on the road. God was giving them not a means by which they earned God's favor. They were saved the same way we were, by grace through faith in what God had revealed to them. But their obedience now, what he expected them now, was their allegiance to Yahweh, and it kept them in a position to experience the blessings, the benefits of this relationship here. And so Exodus 20, then, is the shaping of what it means to bear his name to the nations. And I want to direct your attention now to chapter 20. The Lord God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, but have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Do you, do you, do you notice that again? What he says here? He reminds them of his grace. I've done this for you. Okay? Now, here's what it lives like to live in a transformed covenant relationship with me. Okay? This is what I've done. Uh, you'll have no other gods before me. No other God. <laughs> they had, they had, God had displayed what he had 
what the other gods did in Egypt, right? Shall no other gods before me. Shall not make for yourself a graven or a carved image, any likeness of anything that's heaven above or the earth beneath, or that's the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Why? Because Israel was the image of God. Israel was to, they, in the relationship to the one true God, the one they worshipped, they were to display who he was. They were made in the image of God. And then he says, I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. He says, I'm going to visit, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to visit the iniquity, the sins of the fathers upon the children of the fourth, third and fourth generation. But he said, I'm going to show mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. To live in the sphere of blessing here. I'm going to pour blessing out. Because I've redeemed you. And then verse 7, he says something very interesting here. That sometimes uh, we can shrink down and miss the full import of this meaning here. We can shrink verse 7 down of taking the name of the Lord your God in vain to using God's name very flippantly, which is wrong. And would cover, this, this, this command would cover that. But it means something deeper than that. If that's, if that's it, you know, so I don't say bad words using God's name. Uh, if that's it, our understanding of it, we're, we're missing the whole spirit of this. What he's saying is this. You shall not take. The idea is to carry, to bear. You shall not bear the name of the Lord your God for a vain purpose, for an empty purpose. I have stamped my name upon you, God is saying here. You are my chosen people. I have put this upon you, and you will not do this in vain. Do not live your life with a purposeless sense here. I redeemed you from this. You will not live in this way. For the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Everything that I imprinted on you as my covenant people, you're now to live in light of that grace. In other words, it's this. Very easily you could sum up um, the Ten Commandments and the rest of Israel's law as this. Worship only Yahweh who redeemed you from bondage. And secondly, represent him well. This is the nation that bears the name of God. In fact, the priests, the Levitical priests, the official priests later on, would have the name of God. And they would have on their, uh, embroidered on their, on, their, on their turban, and they would have on their, on their chest, over their heart, twelve stones that represented the nation of Israel. And what God is saying to the Israelites is this. You're to live like you have the name of God tattooed across your forehead. Israel was to live in the midst of the nations as a people who bore the name of Yahweh and made him visible in the world by walking in his ways, reflecting his character, and speaking of him as Deuteronomy 6 says. And so to bear the name of God was a, a privilege that we can't even begin to put words to and a blessing, but it also had a challenge to it too, didn't it? Which is why, <laughs> because they would fail in that, they needed the sacrificial system. Looking ahead to the one who would pay for all things. But it gave them a responsibility there. You might say, okay, that's awesome. Israel, this is, this is what they did. And we know they failed. So I guess that didn't work. So what does that have to do with me? Well, that's what I want to share with you here. Who are we? This is what Israel was and what they were here for. Who are we and what are we here for? Because Exodus 19, 4 through 6, 
develops Genesis 12, 1 through 3, of being a blessing to all the nations, right? And the saving purposes of God for the world. Because the mission of God's people means being God's priests in this world. That is not just an Old Testament concept. Did you know that? We today, God's believers, the Church of Jesus Christ, of Jew and Gentile, are to be a representative people. Our task is to represent the God who is alive, who is living in the world, and to bring the world to acknowledge the truth of the one true living God. How do you see this? Well, go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Where Peter, going back to Exodus 19, he quotes the book of Exodus, he tells his readers, who are most likely mostly uh, Gentiles, as, as a majority of Gentiles who are responding in faith and believing at this point in the, uh, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's saying, you, like Israel, have also had an exodus experience. And your response should be to live a life of declaring praise for God's mercy. And not just on your lips, but as you live among the unbelievers, you're to live in such a way that they do not call question to God's name and bear God's name. And here's what he says in 1 Peter 2. Verse 5, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Because he says you're joined to the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, Jesus. You're joined to the living stone, that stone that was a stone of stumbling here. And then in verse uh, uh, 9 he says this, but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar, that's God's own, a unique, a special treasure people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think about these words here. They're powerful. They're powerful here. What he's saying is this. This is what God has done. Really, this is really difficult here concept here. Difficult to practice, but not a, not a difficult concept. Imitate God. Imitate God. We are to be the living proof of the living God. To bring God to people and to bring people to God. That's part of God's mission here. We are to reflect redeeming grace. And notice what he says in 1 Peter 2 of how this happens. <clears throat> a holy nation. A holy nation. How? We have to be holy? What's it to be holy? There are a lot of kind of distorted ways to think of what it is to be holy, and I've heard some of them, and I've participated in some of them. And, but holiness, as Peter had quoted from, from Leviticus 19 earlier here, holiness is way bigger and more beautiful than we get really thought about sometimes. In fact, when, when Peter says, be holy as I am holy, in Leviticus, quoting from Leviticus 19, holiness in Leviticus 19 was, was this, respect within the family and the community. Exclusive loyalty to Yahweh. A proper treatment of their sacrifices. 
very practical ways, economic generosity in agriculture. <laughs> Taking what God gave you through the ground and sharing. Uh, being just in, 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 in how you treat workers. And Leviticus 19.13. A compassion to those who are disabled and don't have the same kind of privileges that you enjoy. And integrity in the legal system. Neighborly attitudes and behavior. Loving one's neighbor as oneself. That's right in Be Holy as I Am Holy, Leviticus 19.16-18. Sexual integrity. Rejection of idolatry and wrong worship. No ill treatment of those who would come from other countries. A practical love. Commercial honesty and trading transactions. Do you, do you see this? It would affect all of life. All of life. Everything. How your life intersects with people. And all through that chapter in Leviticus 19, I am the Lord, God says. In other words, your quality of life needs to reflect me. You bear my name to the nations. This is what I'm telling you to do because this is what reflects me. This is what I myself as an Israelite would do if I were an Israelite. And he would be. Jesus. Years later, centuries later. That was what it would look like for Israel to be different from the nations. Not just that they worshipped a different God and they went to the temple and offered some sacrifices here from the other God, but they actually lived and behaved and spoke and shared differently in every dimension of personal and social life. So what's holiness for us to boil that down today? It's simply obedience to God's command and a response to His undeserved. Love him supremely. Love our neighbor as ourself. In fact, you see this all through the New Testament on how our treatment of others in relation to how God in Christ has treated us is found. Be merciful, Luke says, Jesus' words, just as your Father is merciful. Love each other, John 15, as I have loved you. Be kind. Tenderhearted, compassionate one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Welcome one another, Romans 15, just as Christ has welcomed you. Excel in this grace of giving, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See the gospel and then transform lives that flow out of this? The good news of what God has done for us? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. First John 3. If any one of you has material blessings... As God's, God's giving you material blessings, and you see a brother or sister in need, but you don't have compassion on them, how can the love of God be in you? Do you see this? Now here's the keystone of all this. Here's how this all comes together. Israel failed. You and I failed. Here's what God did. 
by what authority can we live in line with this? By what authority can we today bear God's name? We are not the nation of Israel. We are God's church. With what power are we able to combat powers of evil? On what basis can we challenge the chains of the evil one? In word and in deed. Jesus said his mission in Luke 4, quoting from Isaiah 61, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. There again, God's power, right? His grace, His enabling. Because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom to those in bondage, to the prisoners. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set the oppressed, those in bondage, free. To proclaim the year of God's favor. And the answer is, how was Jesus going to do that? It was through the cross. Through the cross. Only in the cross of Jesus Christ is there forgiveness, justification, cleansing. Only in the cross stands the absolute defeat of the evil powers. Only in the cross is there release from the fear of death and its ultimate destruction from eternal death in hell forever. Only in the cross are even the enemies that seem like they would never be able to be reconciled. Paul and the churches, Saul and the churches, be reconciled. Only in the cross will we finally witness the healing of all creation when Jesus returns. Earth has been touched by sin in every single aspect, every area of life. And I want to tell you, by God's incredible grace, we have a cross big enough to change all of it. We won't see it all change in our lifetime. Death, sickness, suffering, won't sin, won't all disappear just because Jesus died on the cross until Jesus returns. We live in that tension. But every dimension of Jesus' good news is good news because of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Think about this. Colossians chapter 1. Look what Paul says through to the Colossians to give this cosmic vision of the cross. A lot of times we want to work and start with individuals and then work to you know the church and then what God does to the world. But God starts in Colossians 1 through Paul with the world and narrows it down to you and I. In Colossians, after talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the head, in verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That's pretty powerful there. That tells us what the cross touches. There is no other power. There is no other resource. There is no other name through which we can offer the completeness of the gospel to the whole person, the whole world, in Jesus Christ crucified in the world. So what difference does it make? 
We support missions. We rejoice in what God is doing around the world. And it would be amazing if God called people from this congregation to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Perhaps use their business, use a niche that God's given them, to use perhaps their retirement years to labor for God's name in another zip code around the world. And, and, not but, and it would be just as awesome and is just as awesome when living people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ in their local area, redeemed by Jesus, live and bear witness and word and deed to our local community as well. As reflectors and messengers of God and Christ our Redeemer. God will call some to go. God will call some to stay. God calls all to bear his name. In Exodus 19, verses 4 and 6, Peter, as he's applying this back in 1 Peter 2, says, you've had your Exodus experience. You've been called out of darkness. He said, you've tasted God's grace and mercy. You're his precious treasured possession, his very own people. Now then, live by that. Live by that truth. Share the good news. Proclaim with your voice and with your life the excellencies of the mercy of God. And he'll say this right after in 1 Peter 2. It's a live among exiles here as people exiled among a, among a broken world. He says this. In First Peter two, you in time past, verse ten, were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your manner of life honest. Having integrity among the the Gentiles and unbelievers. That whereas they may speak against you as evildoers, to slander you and say you're you're bad for society. They may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God when God comes to visit the earth. I'll come to glorify you. Some will want to kill you. And some will be head-scratching. And there will be attractiveness about your living out and bearing God's name in the world. And we'll say, whatever's happened to that person, I want to know his God. We, like Israel, <clears throat> have been released in Exodus from the bondage of sin to represent God to our to our spouses, our children, our, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, our employees, our bosses, our communities, our towns, and beyond. And we are to praise Him as priests in His kingdom who have been brought out of darkness to represent Him, all just as it is from the beginning in Genesis 1, as His imagers. Through the promises to Abraham to bless the nations, as the kids sang this morning, in the strong name of Jesus, through the sharing of his cross 
and his resurrection, and together living in line with his purpose to engage in love and service to each other in the world. We're God's kingdom of priests. And that's why we celebrate this morning his death and resurrection. We have a mission. Mission is not just to sit here and gloat. Look what God did to me. The mission is to say, look what God can do for you as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to respond as you called Israel to respond to your grace and allegiance to you. A greater passion for you. May you find us faithful. May you in our lives together be glorified. Help us to be intentional. To be practical where the rubber meets the road. To bless the nations through the message of Jesus Christ. And then the life that is transformed out of that. To put ourselves aside and to serve others for the kingdom of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the examples of so many of those folks and increasing. Thank you that your work is not done. You will build your church. I thank you for the precious believers here at South Hope who have embodied that in so many ways and help us, Lord, to abound more and more. Help us to press on, not out of our own efforts, but after filling our sails and drinking deeply and taking your yoke upon you, upon us. Thank you for what you've done for us. We, at one time, were not a people of God, but are now the people of God to the mercies of God. And so by the mercies of God, help us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, dedicated, surrendered to you, to do your will, to be your imagers. Because you have branded the name of Jesus on our bodies. To live this out in Jesus' name we pray. Sing this word.